You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series Podcast, Episode 10. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. Today, I brought fellow coach Dr. Karen Leitner on to talk about the challenges of call. We don't have to make ourselves miserable. On with the show. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we need to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Hey, welcome surgeons. So I have a special guest on today. This is Dr. Karen Leitner. She is an internist, um, also a pediatrician by training. She was a primary care for a number of years um, and also transitioned to telehealth and then is now a full-time coach. And I brought her on because we were in training together at the LCS school at the same time. I absolutely adore her work. And I just finished reading her Kevin MD article on taking call. And I thought that she had a lot of good lessons for all of us who are struggling with calls. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about the dreaded taking call. Welcome Dr. Leitner. How are you? Thank you. I'm wonderful. I'm so happy to be here. Likewise. Um, so I know that uh, in looking at that article, um, what compelled you to write about taking call? So one of my clients, um, my coaching clients is a surgeon and we had a session on her thoughts about call and how much she dreaded it and how much of a joy kill it was. And it wasn't even being on call. It was like the lead up to the call, you know, like all the days you lose, like counting down. And I call it the Sunday night scaries. Um, really like she did not have a handle on it. And then the call itself, there's what happens on call. And then there's all this stuff we're thinking on call. And what I was trying to help her understand is if you're going to be on call, which if you're signing up to be there and you're showing up, you might as well try to have a mindset that's going to help you as opposed to hold you back while you're there. So I coached her and then I just pulled you know, my network at large to ask other people, what kinds of things do you think about on call that help you get through it? As opposed to, you know, thinking back to when I was in residency and I understand coaching um, call for, you know, internal medicine versus surgery is different. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that, but at least for me, I would work myself up into this, like, it's not hysteria, but just, I'd be so scared because of all the things I was thinking instead of what actually was happening in front of me. So just being able to like come back into my body and focus on the things I needed to focus on on call would have made it so much more bearable for me instead of spinning around in all these thoughts about all the mistakes I would make and how bad it was and who I might kill and all these sorts of things. So that was why I wrote the article to help other people like to crowdsource some of these helpful thoughts. Yes. And, you know, and you and I trained uh, with the life coach school. So of course, you know, we, we know that the circumstance, which of call, like, you know, that's just a day of the week. Um, and we have lots of thoughts about it. And so share some of the thoughts that you had when you pulled your, your, you know, several hundred people in your um, group and all, what are some of the thoughts that came up that, uh, that came to mind? Oh, they were all over the place. You know, some of them were really, people would tap into why they went into this profession at all. You know, like I want to help these patients. I just need to show them kindness. You know, I can be here for them. I can help them. But then some of them, it was like only 22 hours left, <laughs> you know, like I can be on my boat next, you know, in two days or 
I'm going to have something really delicious for breakfast when I get home, like just a total change the channel in your mind. So they were sort of all over the place. The thing about thought work is you have to believe the thought you can't be like, you know, this, you can't be like, I love call. That's not going to work. It has to be something you believe, but a lot of it was just like, I'm, I'm trained to do this. I have the skills to do this. I'm going to do the best I can today. Those kinds of thoughts instead of the ones that are like, this is terrible. This is unfair. I hate this. Why did I pick this career? Right. Cause then you're just trying to do call with all these negative feelings. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I've done a lot of, you know, self-coaching and, and getting coaching as well on the aspect of call, because it can be so difficult. It sometimes helps to talk about it in groups, but typically what comes up is like, yeah, everybody thinks call sucks. Yeah. You know, of course it's terrible. And so we kind of reinforce this idea that it's terrible, but without any specifics, things that have helped me when I looked at call, like what are my problems with call? I get a phone call in the middle of the night and what are my thoughts? And I really tried to focus hard on what the thoughts were that came up to me about that phone call. And typically it's like, you know, blah, 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 patient, impossible situation. And I would find myself just so worked up. Like, what am I going to do? You know, and, and even before the call, that anticipation of it too, and, and dread and, you know, hesitancy and, you know, just kind of waiting for the other shoe to fall. And I was like, why is that? What is the thought that's leading to this? Um, and I drilled it down to a couple thoughts, which were, um, I don't know what to do. And, you know, it's so interesting because the, you hear this thing. And the first thing you thought of is like, oh my gosh, there's, there's no right answer. I don't know what to do. And when I really kind of stepped back and said, is that true? You know, is it really true that I don't know what to do? You know, I already know what to do. I can, and the, the best way out of overwhelm is to take some steps. And so hearing that, I said, well, what are the steps I could take? Well, I can write orders. I can go see the patient. I can call people. I can order more imaging. I could ask for help. Um, I could come up with a differential diagnosis. And once I realized I actually do know what to do, um, that helped a lot uh, because I, not only did I know what to do and the thought that was causing me so much discomfort, um, was actually not even true, but I actually knew by telling myself what was true, which I do know what to do. It gave me some action steps to do. And that helped a lot. Um, the other scenario that I had was, um, I can't, I can't help this person. It's the feeling responsible for someone that comes to your door. You know, we know the type they've smoked all their life. They've not taken care of themselves, uncontrolled diabetic, you know, the impossible situation, this idea of like, I know I'm not going to fix all their problems. And I think releasing my obligation to fixing all their problems because it's not possible. And what I was doing is I was fighting reality. I, my fighting reality was like, I'm going to overcome all the problems. Everything's going to be better. It was acknowledging everything is not going to be better. You know, I might help a little bit, but I'm not going to change necessarily the trajectory of their life. And so then you start changing, like, well, what am I going to do? I could, you know, do the immediate next thing. I can do what I can to help them out, but I don't tie myself to their outcome if I can't control their outcome, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It makes sense that like the two things I kind of hear from what you just said, the first one is like, instead of going to just, I don't know what to do, you go into like, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> right. That's and it's so just, powering. you feel so different and they're the same thing. I'm going to figure this out. It's like, I haven't figured it out yet. Like I've no, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out. And then you go and figure it out. And then the second one is like, 
uh, I can't fix this person and that's okay. Right. Yeah. It's like giving your, it's like, you can't fix everybody. And if anyone asked you like, Oh, did you go into surgery? Because you think you're just going to fix everybody. You'd be like, no, that's ridiculous. I know that that's not true, but then we do kind of like measure ourselves against this un like this unrealistic measuring stick of like, I'm not doing a good job if I can't fix this person. So now I resent this person for showing up with a problem I can't fix, you know, instead of just being like, yep, that's, that's part of this job. Can't fix everybody. Going to do what I can. Yeah. And it never turns into an uncomfortable feeling. So I know that, you know, one thing that we've always uh, talked about too, is that, um, you know, you can't feel happy all the time. You can't feel positive all the time. You know, if I can take overwhelm and anxiety and tie myself to this outcome to just uncomfortable that I'm not going to fix all their problems, you know, I'm never going to be happy. The fact that I can't fix all their problems. And, you know, I currently have on service some many, many people who surgery is never going to fix their problem. And all (laughs) they'll do is, is probably cause more harm. Am I going to help them? Am I going to fix them? Um, And unfortunately um, I'm starting to wrap my head around the idea of until I have a crystal ball, I'm never going to (laughs) know if like, if surgery is going to help or not doing surgery is going to be a better outcome for them. I always um, go back to Atul Gawande's uh, lessons in being mortal of asking the, the patient, what is your understanding of the situation? And like, what do you think is going to happen here? And a lot of times this happened even today, um, this person devastating problem. And someone said, well, surgery's coming. So told the nurse, the surgeon, I'm having surgery today and everything's going to be fixed. And I come by and I was like, whoa, whoa, nothing is going to be fixed by any kind of surgery I can do. And so it's interesting because like, what is your understanding of the situation, making sure they understand their, uh, the current situation they're in. And then the next is what do you want out of this? And I talk to people a lot about the DNR, DNI, like the, uh, which goals of care, it's all just a line in the sand. And I tell them purposely it's aligned in the sand because that line shifts all the time. And it's supposed to shift our understanding of a situation is different. You know, someone's like, oh, sure. I want surgery, but, but don't resuscitate me. Don't intubate me. You know, it's like, but if I do surgery, you're, you're probably gonna be in the ventilator for a little while. I don't want that. And so understanding the situation, asking them what they want. And, you know, it may just be go home um, and be spend the time with your family. It may be, I want you to do whatever you can to extend my life. Even if it's a little bit, you know, like surgery, I know is not going to be the cure all, but maybe it's going to get me home sooner. Um, you know, I recently had a patient who wanted to have surgery knowing that it was a high, high risk, but he wanted to get back home to his wife who was ill. It's understanding what they want, but then you also have to say, this is what you're going to give up to get there. This is what you have to give up to do that. For the, the patient who um, was going to undergo a risky surgery with the attempt of going home, you may never get home. You may never be able to help her, but you might, and I can't guarantee that. That's very, very difficult to be able to want to know if this was the right choice. And we know that it's not, it may not be the right choice for what they want, but we try what we can. And that's still uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, what is coming up for me just listening to you is it's like, at what point did it become like a success in your role is if you fix them or not? Like, what if you just change the definition of what a success is? Like what I just heard you say is success is you treat them with dignity. You treat them with kindness. 
right? That is already like not easy to do. And so many surgeons don't do that at all. Mm -hmm. And with compassion, but with like brutal honesty, Mm -hmm. you know, like what if that is what success is? And then, you know, you make the best decision with them in partnership, but as opposed to thinking that like the weight of the world is on your shoulders and you're supposed to make this perfect decision, like you tell your patients all the time, you only get to live it one way. So you're never actually going to know if it was the right decision or not. So you can either choose to torture yourself till the end of time when it, when they die or whatever, or you can just choose to believe that you made the best decision with the information you had in the, in the time. And either way, you're not going to know, but why wouldn't you choose to believe the one where you're not beating yourself up for the rest of your career? (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, and this goes into what we were talking about with, you know, your, um, your, all your many years in primary care. Um, and we do this all the time is that we tie ourselves to the outcome. We tie mm-hmm. ourselves to the outcome that we can't control. And mm-hmm. so um, there's a major theme that I always talk about of being a reactor and being a creator. And if you put your self-worth and who you are as a surgeon or as a primary care doctor on their outcome that you can't control, you might mm-hmm. get lucky, but you're always at their mercy. And that's mm-hmm. where the stress is. That's where the overwhelm is. Because every time you're waiting to check, the next lab will tell me if I'm worthy. The uh, The next vital sign is going to tell me I'm worried. So it makes mm-hmm. sense why you go back to the record over and over and over again to look. Because you're waiting for someone to tell you that you're worthy. Mm-hmm. And how stressful is that? Yeah. Oh my God. So good. Yeah. Because it's like when something bad happens to a patient, one of the first things we think is like, I hope I didn't mess up. Did I mess up? Let me see if I messed up. Was it my fault? And it's normal. We all think that, Mm -hmm. but that's the same idea. It's like, we're, we really are tied our self-worth to, and if the patient does well, then we're like, I'm amazing. But like I was telling you before we started recording, if a patient doesn't do well, because they're not going to all of them, Um, or if we make that mistake, because as a surgeon, like you you must tell people you're going to mess up, right? (laughs) Like it's going to happen. Like now what, how do you, how do you have that relationship with yourself that you're not deciding you're unworthy and like unlovable and wanting to like run and hide in a cave for the rest of your life? Yes. And you you reminded me of something, um, that's so interesting because, you know, one of the advice pieces of advice that we got when going to a code is the very first thing you tell yourself, you are not the one who is ill. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny because what happens is, is that we feel this rush and then, you know, yeah. oh my gosh, I've got to do this. And the first thing you do, you say, you're fine. They're not, <laughs> right. you're fine. Right. And you have to tell yourself first. And the same, and it's interesting because as I'm talking about, you know, telling the patient what the situation is, are we telling ourselves what the situation is? Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell people too, when it comes to complications, the informed consent, are you paying attention to the informed consent? You know, are you paying attention to the fact that it's statistically possible that you can have anastomotic leak, leak oh, after yeah. surgery? Are you consenting to accepting right. the risk right. of heart attack, stroke, death, you know, and so good. It's interesting because we think it's not going to happen. And right. the patients are so much more forgiving of us than we are yeah. because they have heard us with a conformed, informed consent, but we have not. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. Oh my God. I love that. The other thing that I think about it's along these lines is risk of malpractice. I don't want to take us like way down this other side conversation, but you know, this idea that 
like bad doctors are the ones that get sued as opposed to like the bad outcomes are the ones that tend to get sued and we don't have control over bad outcomes most yeah. of the time but there's all this stigma and it's like oh you know so common for lawsuits to happen because bad outcomes are relatively common and we tie that to our self-worth like what does it say about me if my patient you know I had a client tell me like her patients were not supposed to die. <laughs> she was a good doctor. This unwritten rule she had for herself. If I'm a good doctor, my patients aren't going to die. And it's like, how's that working for you? Right? Like we are not all powerful. We don't have control over that. So right. we have to give ourselves a little slack. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, we, we talked a little bit about this before we start recording too, is that, you know, what do you do when you make a mistake? And then say if, when we're all going to do it you know, we're all going to um, miss a lab or do an order wrong or overlook something. Um, and in surgery, you know, we, we may like, uh, you know, cut something we're not supposed to, things like that, you know, or overlook something, miss a diagnosis, all, all kinds of things can happen. You alluded to it a little bit too, and I've taught coach people on the complication aspect before, but, you know, we forget that being a good surgeon or good, being a good doctor is being there for the patient you know, owning the story. Um, we talked with Brene Brown's um, shame resilience of um, first is reaching out to a trusted source. So anytime when it comes to, and even call too, like um, chatting with someone ahead of time too, if you find yourself really stressed out, you know, reaching out to a trusted source about your concerns. And then the next is talking to yourself kindly. You know, you're gonna do the best you can. You know, of course, that we may not understand or know exactly what to do, but we'll give it time. You know, uh, the, the third aspect is owning the story so you can own the ending. And for me, owning the story was understanding that I didn't know, and it was actually okay, because I knew at some point I was gonna figure it out. I trusted myself to say, I'm gonna find someone, I'm gonna get help, things like that. That's how we avoid the shame. It's when we don't talk about it or we think it's not gonna happen. Um, I think it's when we get into a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to piggyback on that, like it's, it sounds so simple, you know, just talk to yourself kindly, but like for women physicians, that is not like part of our, we do not know how to do that. And not only that. So it's like, we are so mean in how we talk to ourselves. How could you have done that? That was so stupid. And everyone's going to, you know, so it, like a few tricks that I ask people to try is, I mean, I didn't come up with this, but it's like, what would you say to your, your best friend or your co-resident, right? If it happened to them, you'd be like, that sucks. I'm so sorry. Right. That's really hard. But when it's ourselves, we're like, you idiot, you good for nothing. I knew you were a terrible <laughs> sir. you know? So it's just notice that that's in there, not helpful, um, normal, but maybe think about what, what a friend, what you might say to a friend in that situation, or even like, if there's someone you really respect and love, like try to imagine what they would say to you, try to hear what they might actually say, because even if you aren't kind to yourself, but if you just stop being so freaking mean to yourself, like you're going to suffer way less. And that is like so much of our work because we have that running inner monologue. That's just like, you did that wrong. You did that wrong. Right. Just loves to come out in these times. And, and then we just believe it. And then we, we feel that shame, like you said. Starting coach surgeons, like, you know, almost two years ago, uh, the one thing I noticed is that we do all the time is we shut down a lot of stuff in between, you know, circumstance reaction, 
you know, circumstance, action, result. Um, like the whole idea of thought and emotion doesn't really play in. And so what yeah. we do is we shut down the ability to hear what we are thinking. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, and Katrina Ubel says this, which is really fantastic. She says, I'm not really woo, but I'm, I'm woo adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm stealing that. I Isn't love that it. Fantastic. Woo adjacent. Woo adjacent. <laughs> And so my, my woo adjacent interpretation of this is that, you know, really just listening to how we talk to ourselves and the more I like talked out loud, it's like, yeah, just talk to yourself all the time. Just talk to yourself. Um, and so, but it really is, is that we don't, if, until we understand how, that we do talk to ourselves, um, we won't know what we're saying and therefore we can't change it. Um, and so I think there's the, the most important aspect is really, really understanding the thoughts that are going on in the back of our mind to help us overcome all of these things, yes. um, which I think is actually a fantastic way to segue into what you do. So I know that you are a full-time coach now mm-hmm. and you have a really excellent program I want you to tell us about because it's called feeling better and who wouldn't want to feel better. <laughs> Tell me more about it now. Right. Yes. Um, before I say that, can I say one last thing Please. about all, because the call system is terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes advantage of doctors and no one should be forced to like work these hours and not sleep and all of the data we have. So I just don't want anyone to think that you and I are like, yeah, the system's fine. And this mm-hmm. is how we would have designed it and just think differently. It's like, no, <laughs> we ought to change, but this is what it is. So now what, like, how can we help ourselves while we're in it? You know? So I just wanted to throw that out there because otherwise I feel like people would have hung up halfway through. Like, are you saying call, like call is not good. It's not. (laughs) Well, I think that currently call is a part of life. Um, Mm. And so now once you start understanding how you feel about call, and then once you start understanding how you talk to yourself about call, sometimes you can kind of get to the point where like, why am I doing this to myself? Yeah. Um, so what are the alternatives do you think to taking call? Oh my gosh. I mean, as a woman physician, a surgeon, it doesn't even matter what your specialty is. Like I really believe the world is your oyster. There are so many things you can do outside of clinical medicine if you want to. Right. But I think you're right. Like learning how to manage your mind. So that call so that you're thinking in a way that makes you the best you that you can be on call would obviously be the goal because you've worked really hard to be in the situation to take care of patients in the way you want. But if you really did decide you wanted to leave, I don't think there's a limit to what a woman physician can do, like in all the non-clinical arenas. And the first thing is to just even notice that there's so many other pathways out there. There is the call that we are accepting and there is the call that we add on to ourselves. Um, and I think the one thing of surgeons is the, you know, complete ownership of a patient. And I know I talked about this last week with, uh, with Dr. Traciola about the locums, you know, this idea that you operate as someone and you go and, mm-hmm. you know, our initial thought is like, well, I wouldn't do that. Of course I had to be there like the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. and that's not really how the system has to work, nor should mm-hmm. work. The ability to have effective handoffs, and this started an 80-hour work week of really understanding that the handoffs can can happen, that we can like come up with different ways to make work-life balance work, um, and that the patients don't necessarily have to suffer from it as long as everybody's on the same page of uh, trust and openness and um, you know helping each other out. 
And so becoming a much more of a system-based practice is I think the way to, um, to alleviate some of the problems of call uh, that come up. And so um, I agree with you in some ways. And the other thing would be like the idea of a surgical list, um, you know, the idea of locums, there's certainly ways to avoid call, but in many of our jobs, having to have call um, and finding ways to not add extra time to it. And I think where all the overwhelm and the, the additional talk and things like that, that we have in our mind, that's where the extra time comes in. So our 24 hour call turns into the 24 hours of dread beforehand, the 24 hours of misery, and then the 24 hours of feeling crappy afterwards. Yes. <laughs> it turns into 72 so hours my, of shit. Yes. So my, you know, um, my evolution of, or a suggestion for call is to say, let's have just 24 hours and not the 72. <laughs> so I have already cut your call down by a third. You're welcome. <laughs> I love it. I love that. All right. That is so good. Um, so I didn't answer your question, but my program is called Feel Better, and I help women physicians in any phase of their career feel better. And right now, so many people are feeling overwhelmed and burned out. We suffer from extreme guilt and feeling like inadequacy and imposter syndrome. And just there's a lot of things that kind of rob us of the joy from our lives and from sort of what we thought we would be feeling and experiencing now at this point, because we've delayed our gratification for so long and we finally get get to some point and we're like, this is it. Um, and so I, I love doing this program because we create such a nice community of women physicians who are really open about, you know, even just talking to you about this. I'm like, if you had told me that there was a surgeon out there who would be so open and receptive and like limits to how we even perceive our colleagues, I think. And then our, the culture of medicine doesn't really encourage us to share like share insecurities, share vulnerabilities, say we're struggling, you know, we're sort of imagined to be just these stoic, like perfect robot people. And, um, and we're suffering because of it. And so people come into my, my group and learn how to think in a way so that they have more control over life and are less reactive and are, um, thinking more useful thoughts so that they can go really create more of what they're looking for and not more of what they're not looking for. Yeah. So. I mean, that's a good point too, because, you know, like we all have similar struggles too. And I know that when you're talking about being a primary care physician, you know, being tied to the outcome of, of folks and, you know, feeling responsible and feeling those ideas of I'm not enough and I'm doing it wrong. I mean, I think that's, that's what a lot of us high achievers are because, you know, at our root, we're all physicians, we're all high achievers. Um, and I think that our thought processes are very similar in some aspect, you know, we had the linear thinking of training, then, you know, we have a little bit of the overwhelm as our career can take whatever turns we want. And then, you know, knowing that the, it's difficult, medicine is difficult in itself, there's a reason they call it an art. Um, and so knowing that we can't always know the answer. Um, it's, it's a challenging profession. And so I think the more that we're able to do things like this, where we collaborate with each other and really of like minds, it helps you um, understand your colleagues a little bit more. Um, and this is how uh, we change medicine is really just changing it a little bit at a time, one relationship mm -hmm. at a time. And mm -hmm. so that's why I was so glad to have you on and, you know, your program making people feel better. Why the hell not? Um, anyway, <laughs> I think exactly. And so I know exactly. that your program doesn't open till the spring, but um, in the show notes, we'll have this, the Karen Leitner MD.com. You can sign up on the wait list if you want to hear about how to feel better until next time. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So good to have you on. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show and share it with fellow surgeons. Let's show each other what is possible. You can find more information at bosssurgery.com and the Boss Business of Surgery Series Facebook group. Until next time.